there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hey, everybody. I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Braber. And this is Nerd Sesh. Charles Darwin. All right, so today on Nerd Sesh, we're going to be tackling the top 10 power forwards of all time. We've done top 10 point guards, top 10 small forwards, and top 10 centers, so now we're filling in the gaps. The power forward may be a, a forgotten position. Strange phrasing there, Carson, but I would say that I I know what you mean, and I tend to agree, you know, maybe not as star-studded as the point guard, the small forward, or the center position. Yeah, so without further ado, let's get into it. Who do you have at number 10 on your list? So number 10, it took a lot of the the 10 spot and, you know, probably through eight were probably the toughest spots to really fill out, especially with some of the HMs, but my number Mm -hmm. 10 is Chris Webber. So I think the number 10 spot was the hardest. I think 9 and 10 were really hard. I have Pau Gasol. I, I have, if I could have a 10B, it would be Tommy Heinsohn, and then Weber would be the next guy. So why don't you talk about Weber? Because the reason I considered Weber was because if you're talking about an individual talent, I think he's top 10. But I ended up, you know, I, I historically in these things, I value winning. And mm-hmm. Powell is one of the great Robins of all time. So even though Weber, you know, carried a team to the Western Conference Finals and was, you know, five-time All-NBA, somehow not in the Hall of Fame, which is so egregious, I gave Powell the slight edge. Yeah, no, I left Powell off my list, actually. Um, it, again, the 10 spot was very hard, and I went between uh, Powell, Dave DeBusher, and some other guys. I really considered DeBusher, too. Um, I wanted DeBusher on, yeah. on. I just couldn't get him in the 10. Yeah. Uh, Chris Weber, as you said, I assume he will be in the Hall of Fame soon, especially with how— I hope so. <laughs> especially with how the Basketball Hall of Fame is. Yeah. A five-time All-Star, and as you mentioned, one-time All-NBA first team, three-time All-NBA second team, one-time All-NBA third team. And I think he'd definitely have a whole lot more of these selections especially all-star wise if he didn't play in such a tough west and i mean again this is an older gripe but potentially weber has a uh nba finals uh championship without some you know spotty officiating yeah yeah no that is totally possible and also you know weber was so unique in that he could run the floor he could handle the ball 
He he could pass, mm-hmm. and he was just an all-around offensive weapon. And you mentioned he made five All-NBA teams in maybe the probably, actually without a doubt, the greatest era of power forwards ever. Going up against KG, mm-hmm. Dirk, and Tim Duncan, he was grabbing spots, and he grabbed a first-team All-NBA nod in there. You look at the 2000-2001 season, averaged 27, 11, and 4. Like, there have just not been that many players that have been that great in NBA history, period. And also very impressive. Weber played for quite a while, mm-hmm. and his career averages are 20.7 points, 9.8 boards, 4.2 assists. It goes to show you the all-around ability of Chris, as well as, I mean, 20 points over... How, how long did he play, Carson? He played... Um, 15 seasons. 15 seasons, and you're averaging 20 points per game for your entire career. Yeah, and nine straight averaging 20-plus. And then he came back, averaged 18.7, 19.5, and then 20 again. So right around 20 for 12 years of his career. Uh, I tried to justify maybe Weber going any higher, but I can't without a championship yeah. or an MVP, a defensive player. There's something to really bump him up. I couldn't do it. Why do you think Powell should be over here over Chris Weber? So it is the championship factor. Powell has two rings. He's a six-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA second team, two-time All-NBA third team, career averages of 17, 9, and 3, 1.6 blocks per game on 51, 37, 75 shooting splits. Look at his playoff numbers for his career, 15.4, 9.2, and 3.2, played in 12 postseasons and in the finals, 17.3, 10.4, and 3.2 with 1.7 blocks and 53% from the field. Specifically, you look at that 2010 finals when a lot of people argued that he should have been uh, finals MVP in particular because of that game seven where he still thrived while Kobe really struggled and almost shot them out of it. He averaged 18.6, 11.6, 3.7, 2.6 blocks per game and shot 48% from the field. And then you look at the 2009 finals when they won as well. 18.6, 9.2, 2.2, 1.8 blocks per game and 60% from the field. The thing is, when you are the legitimate second star on, on two championship teams, I think that that really means something. And this was part of the difficulty I had with him versus Heinsohn and DeBusher, actually. Heinsohn, you know, an eight-time champ, but he was really the consensus third or fourth guy on all of those teams. So as great as he was, I think Powell played a greater role And although it was in a smaller number of championships, that's why I gave him the nod. I agree. I mean, Powell was imperative to those championship teams. They wouldn't have they wouldn't have won without him. Well, and you saw that. I mean, they were, you know, a borderline playoff team before they added Powell and Powell, you know, one of the most beautiful scores that I can remember watching such nice touch, beautiful jump shot, um, great footwork out of the post and really just a, a great NBA player. Let's move on to number nine. Who do you have here, Logan? So, Carson, I'm going to be honest. I played with this guy up to like seven or six, and it was a lot of delegation, a lot of figuring out, what what do I do here? I talked to my dad. Number nine, Kevin McHale. Can I say the most embarrassing thing that I've I've ever said on this show? I I forgot Kevin McHale existed. (laughs) So Kevin McHale is not on my list. Let me just... Okay. (laughs) Let me look around real quick. Okay. (laughs) Bad news for Pow. Powell is no longer on my list. Okay. <laughs> Kevin McHale is 10. We'll get to McHale. No, no, no. McHale's going to be higher than 10 for me. Okay. So we'll get to McHale when we get there. Why don't you give the numbers for him first? Uh, so McHale is a Hall of Famer, a seven-time All-Star, one-time All-NBA first team, three-time All-Defensive first team, three-time All-Defensive second team, a two-time six-man of the year award winner, and career averages of 17.9 points, 7.3 boards, and 1.7 assists. I mean, the knock on McHale would be that he played on uh, some very good championship teams of course, with uh, one of the all-time greats and Larry Bird, but McHale, very similar to Powell, imperative to winning championships. I didn't mention how many championships he won. Three. Three. 
And Mikhail is so special because he's maybe the most versatile post scorer of all time. He had like, and this is what we talk about, you know, with the way that the NBA game has changed. Now it's so many threes, so much at the rim. And really the great post scorers like Embiid, they have like three post moves. They have a post fade. They have, you know, maybe a drop step, a power dribble. And, you know, like just a basic hook, if guys even use that, which really Jokic is one of the few guys that really uses that. Mikhail had like 15 moves he could go to. He just put people in the blender. And that is why he is in my top 10 and has been this entire time. You know, Kevin McHale is actually on my top 10 NBA coaches of all time. I would I wouldn't put him there. Logan, I'll be honest with you. We'll have a debate about this one. Yeah, all right. right. Well, we've already done our top ten NBA coaches episode. We'll have to do a revision. Okay. Kevin McHale's number three. All right. Um, yeah, McHale is gonna be higher for me, but my new number ten, who was my number nine, <laughs> Dennis Rodman. Ooh, okay. I, I have Rodman at eight. Okay, so Rodman. Five-time champ, obviously, both in Detroit and Chicago. A two-time All-Star, seven-time rebound champ, two-time All-NBA third team, two-time defensive player of the year, seven-time first-team All-Defense and one-time second-team All-Defense. The number is 7.3, 13.1, and 1.8 on 52% from the field. But really, who cares about the numbers? He's one of the greatest defensive players of all time, one of the most versatile defensive players of all time at 6'7", an outstanding perimeter defender, and also a guy that, you know, could average 18 rebounds a game in a season. And the reason I don't have Rodman higher is because he was never the second best player on a championship team. But I also think that you see how essential he was to establishing toughness and just to just wrecking the game with his defense. And that's why I have to have him on my list because he won in two spots, and and he was great for all of it. I agree on all counts, Carson, and mm-hmm. I texted you last night because, you yeah. know, we're nerds here. We like yeah. finding out streaks and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Tw- uh, it was, I'm trying to recall the numbers. I think it was 24 straight games with 15 rebounds. Oh, my God. Seven straight games with 20 rebounds. That's and insane. the most astonishing one that I texted you last night, 52 yeah. straight with 10 rebounds. No, it's insane. I mean, he is... He's got to be the greatest rebounder of all time. Take out Wilton Bill Russell because they had a million mm-hmm. possessions a game. It Rodman, when you consider his size, it's either Rodman or Barkley to me because undersized, but just use their bodies so well, so aggressive. Also undersized in the weight department as well. Yeah. 210. Yeah. I mean, it's like Clay Thompson going out there and getting you 19 boards a night. That's actually, that's <laughs> measurably, that is basically exactly what it is. You know, Rodman's longer, but yeah, he was an absolute freak and he's got to be here. Let's move on to my new number nine. I'll, I'll catch up with you. So you've already done Rodman, which is eight. So let me let me go for okay, a little go bit ahead. here. I have Dolph Shays. Well, I have Shays at seven. Okay, so we're following we're following along here nice and well. So I think part of the difference is going to be the McHale factor. Then, uh, so Shays, a one time champ, twelve time All Star, twelve time All NBA, six time first team, six time second team, eighteen and a half points, twelve point one boards, three point one assists per game, averages for his career, eighty five percent from the line. I just wanted to say, he's the greatest free throw shooting big man ever besides Dirk. Wow. And he played in the 50s. So shout out to Dolph. He got his free points. You know what's funny is, I guess, preliminary thoughts on a foregone era in the case of Shays. I just assumed all these guys were small. Dude, Shays was like, what, 6'9", 250? Yeah, no, Shays was was big. And because of that, he averaged 20 and 12 for six straight seasons. And then you look at the playoffs, 19 and a half points, 12.2 boards, 2.6 assists per game. One of the first great players in NBA history. I felt Shays was very hard to rank just because it's, you know, such a drastically different era. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so where is McHale going to sit on your list now? A little bit higher. Okay. You want me to move on to who I have next? Yeah, sure. So next up, I have Elvin Hayes. Um, so this is my number eight now in my revised list. Okay, Hayes was omitted from my list. Really? So I have to ask, did you leave off Bob Pettit? No. So there must be someone that I have, or am I just doing, no, it's because you love McHale. I'm sorry. I'm, yes. Come on, Carson. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. This has gone to shambles. Uh, okay. So Hayes is obviously one of the all-time great scorers. He was a one-time champ, a 12-time All-Star, six-time All-NBA, two-time All-Defense, career averages of 21, 12 and a half, and 1.8, one steal, two blocks per game, averaged 21 or more points per game, 10 times. His first four years, he averaged 27.4 points and 16.3 rebounds per game. In the playoffs for his career, 22.9, 13, and 2.6 blocks per game, averaged 20-plus points in his first nine playoffs, and in his finals career, three series, you know, people forget those Bulls teams, they only got one. They went to four with Unseld, and Hayes was there for three of them, and he was great in the finals. I may have not done enough research for this one. 11 straight seasons to open his career as an all-star. Yeah. I and, might have to give Chris Webber the boot. Well, and he is a top 10 scorer of all time. And he did win a championship, and he did make it to three finals. Chris Webber, I tried, man. Wow, we are, we are going on the fly here. This has never happened before, has no, it? No, this Where is we've a, made this is a, changes to our list. Well, I guess it kind of started <laughs> when we did the All-Star episode, and you, yeah. you gave me the B.I. case. I, I'm not even mad. I, Chris Webber, I'm sorry. You're, you're a Hall of Famer for sure. Yeah. But... Elvin Hayes is going to be on my list now. Yeah, so the finals numbers for him, 20.5 points, 10.9 rebounds, 1.1 steals per game, 2.1 blocks per game, 44% from the field, and in the 78 finals in particular when they won it, 20.7, 11.9, 1.6 steals, 2 blocks, 48% from the field. Of course, you know, he wasn't the best players on the on those teams. Well, actually, he probably was the best player by 78. He didn't have the best series because Unseld won finals MVP, but he could score the ball. Carson, what were the teams that he played for early on doing? This man is playing 45 minutes a night. That's just how it was back in the day. That was crazy. I cannot believe this is, I was going to say Monte Ellis, but Monte never did anything like this. Elvin, I can't believe he lasted so long playing that many minutes a night. He played 40 minutes a night up until the, his 32 year old season. Yeah. And speaking of how long he lasted, if you're looking at just NBA scores of all time, taking out the ABA, he's 10th all time in points. Which is why I feel like he has to be here because he had that success, sustained success, did actually have some team success, really one of the forgotten great players in NBA history. And I feel like sometimes when he is talked about, there's like this sense of like, you know, empty numbers for a long time. No, I mean, in San Diego, those teams weren't winning. But in Washington, they were great teams and he was scoring, you know, 20 plus all the time. As you said, this has never happened before on yeah. Nerd Sesh. I feel like uh, I feel kind of dumb for just not. Putting Elvin Hayes on my list, he's deservedly here. How do you think I feel about forgetting Kevin McHale? I just forgot he existed. We're just goofing today. Yeah. All right. So let's move on. Are we caught up yet? Uh, we are at number seven for you. I have said seven was Shays for me. Okay. So seven for me would be McHale. Uh, and now I don't have all of the pre-written out numbers, but let me talk about my gut. So McHale was, you know, the second best player on three championship teams and one of the greatest dynasties ever. Well, you ran it down. Tell me why you should be over guys like Elvin Hayes and Dennis Rodman. Because of the fact that he was the second best player on one of the okay. greatest championship right. teams of all time. I mean, Rodman was a clear 
third guy, uh, if you could even argue that he was the third guy in Detroit. Now, he probably was third as far as value because he was maybe the best defensive player on the planet. But McHale was a guy that when he was at his best could average 26 a game like he did in that 86-87 season. Um, Obviously, was a guy that would play through anything, played with a broken foot through the playoffs, and was still able to produce. Scored 60 in a game once, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he really is just... He might be... He's not the best Robin ever, but he's really, really up there. Just because, you know, you have guys like Kareem, you have guys like young Kobe that he can't quite compete with. But McHale was special. And... In the playoffs, got even better. 18.8 a game, 56% from the field. This is another one of the incredible things about McHale. He was such a phenomenally efficient scorer. And just looking at some of his playoff runs, averaged 25 a game in the playoffs on the way to the 85-86 finals. Averaged over 25 a game in in 87-88 when they made a run to the Eastern Conference Finals. He was really just great. And actually, I'm realizing now he wasn't the second best player on that first Boston team uh, when he was a rookie, still a valuable contributor, but one of the second best players in in a dynasty. And so that's why he has to be there for me. Yeah, um, maybe I should reconsider. Uh, I'm going to keep mine the same. I do think, however, though, when you talk power forwards, there's a clear cut top six. I, I tend to agree. If someone put Mikhail a little higher, I wouldn't be that mad because I think winning really matters. Mm-hmm. But who do you have at six? So you may push back a little bit uh, for this one. I had Charles Barkley at six. I have Barkley as well. I, I was afraid that you might put uh, Barkley higher, higher up than maybe Pettit mm-hmm. or um, maybe Malone. I didn't know how you were going to gauge mm-hmm. Malone's career. Yeah. But uh, Barkley is at six for me, uh, mostly because of the lack of a championship. Yeah. Uh, a one-time MVP, however, I mean, Barkley was as dominant as anybody. An 11-time All-Star, a Hall of Famer now, five-time All-NBA first team, five-time All-NBA second team, one-time All-NBA third team, 22 points a night, near 12 boards, and near four assists for his career, and a three-time leader in offensive rebounds, uh, you know, single season wise. Yeah. Oh my God. He was incredible. And he's doing that at six, five, his six year peak, 25.9, 11.6 and 4.1. And I will say, I will say this. Barkley is one of my favorite players ever. He's incredible to watch. And, you know, he was a guy that really shot, shot a lot of jumpers, which a lot of people, you know, it's not really associated with Barkley's game. He shot the three. He didn't shoot it that well, but he shot it. (laughs) And he's quick out there. Like, you know, you think of the round amount of rebound, you think of especially now a fat, <laughs> fat Charles Barkley. But you got to remember, he was 6'5", so he was a shooting guard size playing power forward. And it showed in his ability to move on the court. You look at the playoff numbers for him as well. 23, 13, and 4, 1.6 steals per game, 51% from the field in the 92-93 playoffs, which was, of course, mm-hmm. you know, the greatest season of his career. He was Four times top five in MVP voting, eight time top six in MVP voting. But 92-93 was the year he won the MVP, his first year in Phoenix. The last year of really that level of dominant Barkley when he goes to the finals in the playoffs. Averaged 26.6, 13.6, and 4.3. And in the finals, averaged 27.3. 13 and five and a half. And of course, I thought Barkley, you know, may have been able to get another ring back in the 96, 97 season when that trade to Houston happened. I mean, how far up higher do you think Barkley is if he has a championship? So I think he, it's a great question. And this is why I think the Barkley Malone debate is actually pretty complicated. Uh, If you look at the numbers, you know, it's, oh wow, Malone's number two all time in scoring. He made it, he made it to more finals, but 
Also, let's remember the best partners in crime that Charles Barkley ever had post-prime Dr. J, Kevin Johnson, or, you know, way post-prime Akeem and, and Drexler. No, he had Dan Marley. And, and Dan Marley. <laughs> but that's like, actually, Kevin Johnson was the second best player yeah. on a finals team with Barkley. The dude was incredible, whereas Malone had a legitimate you know, 1B in John Stockton, who a lot of people would argue was as good as him, and that's why they were so much more consistent. That team was pretty deep, though. Deep, but I'm just saying, if you're, if you, would you rather have John Stockton or a couple years of, you know, old Julius Irving, Kevin Johnson, and then you go to Houston, you're not yourself, and the guys you join aren't yourself either. Uh, I'm far and away going to take Stockton. Exactly. So that's the thing with the Barkley cases. If they switch spots, now, obviously, it's a li- this is oversimplifying a little bit because Malone was tailor-made to plan that pick and roll with John Stockton. But if Barkley plays alongside Stockton and Hornacek, there's a very real chance, I think, that those teams end up being better. And that's the hard part engaging this. Mm-hmm. Because does that mean that Barkley was better? Well, the resume isn't better. So that's why I have Malone above him. Ultimately, is it's conjecture versus reality. I agree. Okay, so let's move on to number five. I, th- I assume we're going to have the same guy. Number five, I have Bob Pettit. I have Bob Pettit as well. And I mean, it's just hard because of a different era, but mm-hmm. you look at the raw numbers from, from Pettit and he's a monster. No, yeah. Besides George Mikan, Pettit was the first guy to really run the NBA for a stretch. And of course, Bill Russell. Every season of his career, an all-star and all-NBA. And never averaged under 20 points per game. So let's walk down the numbers. A one-time NBA champ, of course, going up against that Celtics dynasty, Four finals appearances, though, and two losses to the Celtics in seven games. The Celtics won a lot of those championships in seven games. Like, it's got to be six or seven of them because the Lakers pushed them there, I think, four times or something. But two to- two MVPs for Pettit, 11-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA, 10-time first team, mm-hmm. one-time second team, a two-time scoring champ, eight top five MVP finishes, career averages of 26.4 points per game. That's eighth all-time and 16.2 rebounds per game. That's third all-time, average 24-plus for nine straight seasons. These numbers blow you out of the water, and I'm going to keep going. His best six-year stretch, 27.8 points, 16.7 rebounds per game. That's averages over six years in the playoffs, 25 and a half, 14.8 and 2.7. And in the finals, he was at his best. Unfortunately, just went up against greater teams, averaged 28.4 and 16.6. But if you look at the individual finals, 57, he averaged 30 and 18, 58, he averaged 29 and 17, 60, averaged 26, 15 and four and 61, averaged 28.4, 16.4 and three. So you can't do much more than that to help your team win. And I know that Pettit did have really good teams around him. He had, you know, Clyde Lovellette. He had Cliff Hagen. But I think he deserves an enormous amount of credit for this. And also, if I'm not mistaken, the Hawks could have had Bill Russell because mm-hmm. they they traded that pick for, was it like, I think it was Macaulay and Hagen or something yeah. like that. Whew, that's a tough one. So I'm going to ask you this, Carson. Did you flirt with having Pettit any higher? I I tried. I couldn't really go any higher than five. Yeah, I didn't really think about putting him any higher, if I'm being honest, because Malone and Malone is my four and his resume is just all time stuff. And if he had a championship, you got to wonder how high he would be all time. In a shocking turn of events, I have uh, Malone at four as well. I I expected you to have Malone pretty high. Why is that? I don't know. I just... I figured you'd be a Malone nut. I mean, the lack of a championship really brings Malone down, and that's kind yeah. of the major knock on him. Yeah. 
Uh, what else do you think keeps him from being as high as other guys? So it's it's the championship. That is a huge part of it. I think the Malone Garnett debate was a really was one that I actually did think about a good deal, and I thought I might have had Malone harder, but uh, higher. But I ended up going with KG. Do you want me to just explain the formula now, and then we'll talk about Malone? Do you because do you have KG at three as well? Yeah. Okay. So I basically developed this formula in my head that yes, Malone's Jazz teams were really consistently good. They were always winning 50-plus games. They were always in contention, but he doesn't have the ring. Whereas Garnett does have the ring. His T-Wolves teams, you know, he had the one season he made at Western Conference Finals. Didn't win a playoff series outside of that. But the way I balanced it out was look at his supporting cast versus Mm -hmm. look at Malone's supporting cast. In the one year you give Garnett a championship-caliber team, even if it's, you know, probably the last year of his prime, he wins a championship. I mean, who did Kevin Garnett have? Stephon Marbury? Cassell? You know, Sprewell. And I mean, I don't really blame Garnett. To me, Carson, I'm going to make a loose analogy here, and I want to see if you back me up. Okay. Reminds me a lot of those young Anthony Davis Pelican squads. Just keep going out in the first round, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're just simply overmatched. That's that's a great comparison. But let's talk about Malone now. The dude is a two-time MVP, two finals appearances, 14-time All-Star, 14-time All-NBA, 11-time first-team All-NBA, two-time second-team, one-time third-team, Four-time all-defense, which I think we forget sometimes. Three-time first team, one-time second team. Nine-time top five in MVP voting. 25 points per game for his career. He's, of course, the number two all-time scorer in league history. 10.1 boards, 3.6 assists, 1.4 steals, 0.8 blocks, and 52% from the field. Had 11 straight seasons, averaging at least 25 points per game. Eight seasons, averaging at least 27. And in the playoffs, 24.7, 10.7, and 3.2. And if you look specifically at the finals... Wasn't at his absolute best, but 97 finals averaged 24, 10, and three and a half on 44% from the field, 60% from the line. 98 finals averaged 25, 10 and a half, and four on over 50% from the field. That is a resume. And let's actually talk this out. If he gets one championship, maybe in the two years Jordan is gone, maybe in 98 when the Bulls are on that last year of a three-peat and they're a little bit worn down, if he gets one championship out of that, how much higher does he go all time? I don't think he does. Not at all. I mean, it's a, you know what? I think he does for this reason. He beats Jordan. No one else has done that. Yeah. I think that could potentially leapfrog him to maybe two. But what if, what if he gets one of the two when Jordan's gone? Hmm. I don't think he goes anywhere. And the the reason being, I mean, you take a look at Garnett and I think what Garnett holds over him still is, I think Garnett was a better all-time defender. Oh, no doubt. And... Garnett still has an MVP, so he can't dangle. Yes, Malone has one more, but he still mm-hmm. can't dangle that over him. I think if Malone had beaten Jordan in the finals, I think you could make a clear-cut case for two. But if he wins him when Jordan's gone, I think it doesn't move Malone whatsoever. I think it probably would move Malone. And the reason is because, you know, some of those KG teams just weren't all that good. Whereas Malone, they were always in the conversation. And if they win one, then that legitimizes it. But if they don't win one... It doesn't matter all that much, which is sort of sad to say and, you know, doesn't feel true in the moment when you're good for a decade plus or for 12 years, however long, you know, Stockton and him had things running really well there in Utah. But a championship is so huge when you're talking about legacy and Malone doesn't have it. And as the number two scorer of all time, he's ranked lower in his own position group than he is in all time scores, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, Moving forward, I thought the toughest uh, debate for me was between Garnett and Dirk. 
Really? Just because Garnett has all those all defense teams yeah. and Dirk doesn't. Mm-hmm. Now the I'll run down the numbers here for KG real quick, okay. and I'll tell you why I had Dirk over him. Okay. Garnett will soon be in the Hall of Fame. Clearly, yeah. uh, a 15 time All Star, four time All NBA first team selection, three time All NBA uh, second team selection, two time All NBA third team selection, and then nine times All Defense first team, three times All Defense second team, a one time MVP, a one time Defensive Player of the Year, and of course that one championship with the 08 Celtics and career averages of uh, almost 18 points, 10 boards, and near four assists for his career. Now, the reason I I had a lot of back and forth with KG and Dirk, Mm -hmm. but I felt Dirk had more to do with his team winning because KG's supporting cast. You have Paul Pierce, Rondo, and Ray Allen, um, and Dirk had to slay the dragon of LeBron James and that three-headed monster in Miami. And what, he had a couple shooters and Tyson Chandler? Yeah. No, I think that is the argument, and that's why this one really wasn't tough for me. It was was the Garnett versus Malone where I ended up going with Garnett. But yes, Dirk also carried his team to another finals when, you know— when Josh Howard was probably their second best player. Like Dirk was phenomenal and that's why he's got to be there for me. But let's talk about KG. You mentioned the MVP and the defensive player of the year. One of four players ever to win both. It's Akeem, it's David Robinson, it's Jordan, and it's him. Um, Five-time top five in MVP voting, three times top two in MVP voting, a four-time rebound leader, had nine straight seasons averaging 20 plus points per game, along with six straight averaging five plus assists per game. In Minnesota, Not only was he the best defender on the planet, he was doing everything for them as a scorer and as a passer. And I can't believe that I didn't look up this number, but he's one of the guys to lead all their their team in all five major categories in a single season. I know that just off the top of my head. Cool flex, Carson. (laughs) I I didn't mean for it to come across that way. Uh, It's confirmed. We've ran the numbers. He he did do that. Um, Yeah. The top of my head was right. And so... This is what we were talking about earlier with Garnett, and that you know number also speaks to the fact that his teammates weren't all that good if he's able to lead in all five. The Timberwolves, the year before he came, they won 21 games, then they had his rookie year, and then they made the playoffs in eight straight years after that. Seven first-round exits, but eight straight years after they were in the absolute cellar. If I'm not mistaken, Kevin Garnett is also the all-time leader in points, boards, blocks, steals, assists for the T-Wolves, right? Oh, that's a good question. I think he's the all-time leader in all of those categories. I I would definitely believe that. You know, the thing with KG's legacy with the Timberwolves is that they did end up missing it for three straight years before he went to Boston. But then, as I mentioned, you really cancel that out with the fact that you go, you, you get a strong supporting cast. In the first year, you win a championship. Yeah, I just confirmed it. And, uh, Carson, I would like to say I also knew that one right off the top of my head. That's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. But let's look at some of these supporting casts for Kevin Garnett teams in the early 2000s. So, oh, Terrell 2001, Brandon. Terrell Brandon was the second leading scorer and they won 47 games. 2001, 2002, they won 50 games. Second leading scorer was Wally Zerbiak. <laughs> is that is that enough for you right there? If you go to the Western Conference Finals team when they won 58 games, Sprewell and Cassell, that was probably the best you know, second and third guys that he ever got. But those dudes were old. Sprewell was 33. Cassell was 34. So he did so much with so little and really is phenomenal and is one of the great players of all time. How do you think he's going to age? Like, how do you think people are going to remember Garnett? Well, 
the talk has been that the 08 Celtics have milked that championship more than anyone else. Maybe. And I think they're going to continue milking that championship. Yeah. I think KG is going to be remembered fondly. I mean, he's on TV now, which, I mean, keeps him in the presence of people. Yeah. I'll ask you this, Carson. Yeah. So say he goes to that Celtics squad, you know, puts up the same great numbers. Mm-hmm. What if he never gets a ring? How? How far does he drop? Well, he's definitely below Malone. You think he's below Pettit? I think he's probably below Pettit. Wow. I do. Because the thing is, it's not like he put up insane numbers in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was making winning plays and he was their best player still. But that's an older KG. That was almost a post-prime KG. You could probably argue his first year in Boston, he was still in his prime. But of course, he didn't win finals MVP. 2008 finals averaged 18, 13, and 3. Was still the best player on that team, but didn't win finals MVP. And then they make it back in 2010, averaged 15, 5.5, 3, 1.4 steals, and 1.3 blocks per game. So... Just an interesting thing to look at the fact that he didn't actually get that finals MVP. Mm -hmm. That is part of his legacy. But I want to talk about something that he did back in Minnesota that was historic. That Western Conference Finals run, we mentioned the supporting cast. His averages, 24.3, 14.6, 5.1, 1.3 steals per game, and 2.3 blocks per game. You know, it's funny because the narrative up to that point had been Kevin Garnett is not a guy that can get it done in the playoffs. He had had a few bad stretches early on when he was young, and you can't blame that on him. Wow, putting up those numbers with that supporting cast. Yeah, and his playoff averages for his career are really good, 18 and 10.7 along with 3.3 assists per game. Another all-around monster, a great passer, super versatile on defense because he was so long and quick and just a monster. And they made another finals appearance after the 08 run, didn't they? Right, 2010, yeah. So that's it for KG, really one of the all-time great players, in particular of our childhood. And this is what I mentioned earlier as far as the greatest era of power forwards ever, as you initially had Chris Webber, number 10 on your list, before realizing that was an error, as I did with Pau Gasol, both from a similar era, you know, Webber a little bit before, but both of these guys played with KG, Dirk, and Duncan, who are the top three. And now it seems like the power forward position is almost going extinct. We are in a weird spot where you're right. Who's the best? LaMarcus Aldridge. I mean, like, well, no, Anthony Davis is a power yeah. forward. No, he is. He plays alongside JaVale and Dwight all the time, and he wants to be a power He could be a center easily, but he chooses to be a power forward. And then who else after him? I mean, you have Kevin Love, Christos Porzingis. I yeah. Mean, I, I mean, I don't know if there's another legitimate all-star that is a power forward. Sabonis is a center. What, is Jason Tatum a four? Yeah, Jason Tatum plays the four, but he's really not a traditional four yeah. also. So, yeah, no, it's it's changing. We, we've, we've fallen off. And the guys, as you mentioned, a lot of the great fours now are really might have been threes back in the day. The versatile guys that can handle the ball and can shoot, but that are taller, you know, like KD could be a four. Yeah. He's been considered a three for his whole life. But in the modern NBA, he could be a four. Is Giannis a four? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Giannis plays the four. But he's a, yeah, but he's a natural three. Yeah. And he can do so many things. He, he can also, you know, play out of the post. He can handle the ball. So that's the thing why positions also are becoming a little bit obsolete. Like when I look at the the all the all star teams in the all NBA, I don't know why this is being defined by position groups anymore, because Luca's a, a point guard at six, eight. But LeBron isn't when they have pretty similar roles. Mm-hmm. They both bring the ball up the court. Luca even more so. But you wonder where, why, what's the point of this subjectivity? Like, I think there was value historically. You know, guys have been straight power forwards, except Duncan, you could actually argue was a center, but yeah. called himself a power forward. So 
there's a whole bunch of ambiguity that you take positions out of it and you make it easier. I say as we're ranking our fourth <laughs> position group of the five. So let's talk about Dirk. Um, I mean, Dirk, I remember... I don't know about you, Carson, but when I looked at the all-time numbers, it didn't really do him justice for how good Dirk was. Like, you can look at these numbers, and I think that if you were, you know, just looking, you see all the all-defense teams for KG. Mm-hmm. If you just looked at numbers, you would, you might say, hey, this Kevin Garnett guy, I may put him above Dirk. But watching him play is certainly a different experience than looking at the numbers. I mean, a 14-time All-Star, four-time All-NBA first team, five-time All-NBA second team, and three-time All-NBA third team, if you're counting, that's 12 All-NBA appearances. But when I was a kid, I felt like it was more. I felt like he hung around longer and was on top of his game for a much longer time. 12 is... (laughs) Right up there with the best ever. I know 12 is a lot. It just seemed like... Malone has 14, and Malone is the ultimate was good for forever guy, you know? I don't know. It just seemed like he fell off a little more than I thought as he got older. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he did get get an MVP, and of course, he got the NBA championship in 2011, in which I thought that Tyson Chandler got the finals MVP, when in fact... It's always a fun tidbit. Dirk Nowitzki did win that finals MVP. Yeah. And also three-time top three in MVP voting, sixth all-time in scoring. So if you're talking about, you know, the numbers do justify him. They are also third most games ever, 12 straight seasons averaging 20-plus points per game and a member of the 50-40-90 club, single season, and for his career, a member of the 47-38-88 club, 20.7 points, 7.5 boards per game on 47-38-88 splits. And in the playoffs, you know, particularly I think after the 06 finals, he got a reputation as a bit of a a bit of a choker potentially, and then you look at 07 when the Mavs win 67 games, he wins MVP, and then they lose first round, and now it's oh boy, this guy's a choker, and doesn't defeat that doesn't defeat that narrative until the 2010-11 season. But his playoff career numbers: 25.3 and 10, 46, 36 and a half, 89 splits. Really, one of the all-time great like clear number one guys because he never had that second guy. So it was always super clear in the big spots. Dirk's going to take over and he did it incredibly well. No, I may be getting a little off track with this, but I would like to mention a side note. So the the 2011 finals were the first finals that I was really invested in and uh-huh. paying attention in. Uh-huh. And of course, I was rooting for Dirk because well, LeBron was the big bad man. Yeah. So uh, just my side note is, well, I played NBA 2K11 as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically playing with the Mavericks. And there was a line that Clark Kellogg uh, delivered that yeah. was, the, the Mavericks have consistently not got it done in the playoffs with Dirk yeah. Nowitzki. Yeah. And it seems like the window is closing this is, uh, I think, their year to yeah. do it if they're going to. And then, of course, later in that year, they actually won the NBA Finals. Just yeah. to add on that that was the narrative around the NBA at that time. Yeah, and you could argue that was the last great Dirk season. I mean, he really squeezed it into the window there. He was 32 years old. That was the absolute tail end of his prime, and, and he was still phenomenal. But that was sort of it. I mean, and you talk about the personnel that was around him. I mentioned Tyson Chandler, but... In my opinion, this is when the switch really turned to where you can put a team based around the three-point line and win a championship. I mean, Jason Terry, you had Jason Kidd, obviously Jason Kidd, old and not as good of a shooter as Terry. But he could shoot um, by his old years. Yeah, he, he could shoot a little bit. He wasn't the Jet. Uh, you had Sean Marion. Who else was on that squad? You had Sean Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just a lot of perimeter-oriented guys, and yeah. it worked out in that finals. Yeah, and... Part of the reason that it worked is because you have the center that is Dirk playing out of the post, demanding everyone's attention all the time. Obviously, that championship was a great team effort, but 
Dirk is, you know, everyone mm-hmm. will remember Dirk from that for forever. And his actual numbers in that finals, 26 and 10 on 42, 37, 98 clips. Wow. He shot 45 of 46 from the line. I wonder how Dirk's legacy is different if he doesn't win that title because I think Dirk, I mean, because the biggest aspect of that championship is that he beat LeBron. I think that's what elevates him the most. I think you can make a case that Dirk drops below Pettit. That's interesting. I think that is possible. At the same time, he is sixth all time in scoring. I mean, he's really one of the greatest scorers this game has ever seen. And until Carl Anthony Towns, the greatest shooting big man there's ever been. So Dirk is phenomenal. But let's move on to who was probably his biggest rival and safe to say got the better of of the rivalry more often than not. Number one, who is it? It's clearly Tim Duncan, and it was never close from the start. Mm -hmm. His numbers are far superior. And when I was going down the list, I was like, I don't even even know why we're doing this because there's no competition for the one spot whatsoever. None. I mean, Tim Duncan, a 15-time All-Star and immediately good out of Wake Forest because he spent spent all four years at Wake, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Immediately dominant, a 10-time All-NBA first team selection. Ten. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. Three All-NBA uh, second-team selections, and as he got older, a two-time All-NBA third-team selection, eight times All-Defense first team, seven times All-Defense yeah. second team, a two-time MVP, a five-time NBA champion, and a three-time Finals MVP, career averages of 19 points, 10.8 boards, three assists on 50% shooting from the field for a career. Four times, Carson, he led the NBA in defensive rating. I mean, the, the list goes on. He's 14th in career PER. Yeah. Tim Duncan was a, an anomaly. And I can't believe he doesn't have a defensive player of the year because for the first three or four years of the 2000s, along with KG, you know, he was basically indisputably the, the best. Well, I guess there was Ben Wallace, but he was so clearly one of the best defenders on the planet. And you see that with the 15-time all-defense. I don't know this for a fact. I can't imagine anyone else has that many. No, I can't. And then you look at also just the total numbers, 17th all-time in points, 5th in rebounds, 7th in blocks. He had 9 top 5 MVP finishes and 13 top 10 MVP finishes. That's almost 15 years that this dude was considered, you know, basically one of the 10 best players in basketball. I mean, we mentioned the five championships as well, and four of them. Far and away, he's the best player. And I could argue that even for that fifth one where Kawhi won finals MVP, he was still the best player on the floor. You definitely could. He didn't have the best series, but there's an argument to me that he was still the best. Actually, I would probably go Tony Parker. I would say Tony Parker was the best player on that team. Mm-hmm. Kawhi, deserving of the finals MVP, though, no doubt. Let's talk about when Duncan might have been at his best, which was in the playoffs. Playoff averages of 20, 11, and 3, 2.3 blocks per game. You look at some of the runs he had. His 0203 playoff run averaged 24.7, 15.4, 5.3, and 3.3 blocks per game. That is disgusting all-time stuff. And then the 23, the 2003 finals, 24, 17, 5.3, and 5.3 blocks per game. Overall in the finals, averages of 20.8, 13.3, 2.8, 2.4 blocks per game. And if you run them down individually, he never disappointed. 99. 27.4, 14, and 2.2 blocks per game in his second year in the league. Immediately, one of the best players in basketball and the best player on a championship team. 2005, 20.6, 14.1, and 2.1 blocks per game. 2007, the year that he didn't win it because they gave it to Tony Parker. 18.3, 11.5, 3. 3.8, and 2.3 blocks per game. I think you could totally argue that Duncan deserved it because he was still clearly the better player, impacted that series so much defensively, and, you know, the offensive numbers aren't shabby either. And then 
This is part of what's so impressive. 2013, at 36 years old, averaged 19 and 12 in the finals on 49% from the field, was this close to an NBA championship and probably his fourth finals MVP. And then even the year after that, 2014 at 37, as we mentioned, one of the best players on a championship team, 15.4 points and 10 rebounds per game. For my entire childhood, Tim Duncan was my favorite player before Draymond Green and Steph Curry came to Golden State. I love Tim Duncan. I will always have an affinity for him. And I think there's a reason because he is outside of Bill Russell, like the ultimate winner all time. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, we've talked about this in the past. Mm -hmm. The Spurs were so much fun to watch when we were kids. And I mean, they they still are. I'm not saying they aren't. But with Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and Manu Ginobili, it's so much fun watching them work the ball around and get buckets. Let me say this, Logan. I have always been of the mind that Tim Duncan had a better career than Kobe Bryant. When I really did this deep dive, I started to think, I don't know if I could even make the argument in the opposite direction. Because you look at the fact that, yes, Kobe played good defense. Duncan was one of the best defenders on the planet for 15 years. Also, obviously never had a dip. Did have, you know, Kobe had some weak supporting casts in there. Duncan never had a dip like that. And just looking at some of the individual finals runs, as I mentioned, 99, 27 and 14, 2003, 24, 17, five in five blocks per game. And what he was still doing at 36 years old, by the time Kobe was 36, He was putting up empty numbers on a terrible team. Duncan was still, you know, the best player on a team that was the greatest shot of all time away from winning a title. You scared me right there. Well, how did I? Oh, you thought I was going to flip to Kobe? I thought you were going to say, oh, no, Kobe's way better all time. No. And then also, of course, you have the fact that Kobe was the second best player on three of those championships. And like by far, you know, Kobe against Indiana didn't even have a great series overall. I think he averaged like 16 a game. Meanwhile, Shaq had three straight all time, you know, around 30 and 15 or better in all three of those finals. Duncan was Duncan was that guy. He's better than Shaq. He's better than Kobe. He is the player of this era. Let me ask you this, Carson. Can you hold it against Kobe that he, you know, kind of toiled away there in the mid 2000s for a while on bad teams? Um, I think that there's, so obviously, you know, he averaged 35.6 a game in that 0506 season and they were, they only won like 45 games. So yes, there is definitely truth to the fact that Kobe had a miserable supporting cast, but I also think equally as significant is the fact that Shaq carried them so much because Duncan's teams never missed the playoffs for however many years he was in the league, 18 or 19, um, they never won less than 50 games except for, I believe, the one lockout shortened season in 98-99 when they won the title because they only played 50 games in that NBA season. It's just consistency like we have basically never before seen. And I think, you know, don't forget how well Tim Duncan aged because, boy, did he age beautifully. Still an all-star at 38. And, yeah, there's probably some fan courtesy there. But Duncan didn't get the fan appreciation like other people did. At 39 in his last season, didn't get the all-star nod. Whereas everyone else from this generation, Dirk, Kobe, D-Wade, all these guys get all the fan love. Duncan went out quietly. Sort of like how he came. And it was still on a great team. They won 50 games in the lockout short in 2011 season. I know. They did. They were 15-16. Or actually 2012 season because. Yeah, 11 Wow. Yeah. No, and I mean, really, the Spurs dynasty is obviously one of the greatest ever. The interesting thing with the Spurs dynasty is they don't win from 2007 to 2014. They don't win at all, which is a little bit weird. But man, Duncan was insane. 
He was insane. I was almost, I know I said something similar to this earlier. I was almost disappointed in looking at the other guys' numbers after going from Tim Duncan. Yeah. Because it was such a dramatic oh, yeah. fall off. Yeah. And of course, by the way, Tim Duncan goes out on a 67 win team. So, you know, not a title team, but a 67 win team. Was that uh, with LaMarcus Aldridge? Yeah, LaMarcus and I'm, that was LaMarcus's first year. And then I'm pretty sure Kawhi won Defensive Player of the Year that year and averaged like 20 plus. And that was his real ascension to like consensus all-star status. So Duncan, he's the greatest to ever do it. Of course, at the power forward position. Yes, Logan, I do not think Tim Duncan is better than Michael Jordan. That is correct. No, we can have that debate right now. I don't want to. All right. uh, I think that's going to do it for us here. I hope you all have enjoyed us discussing and forgetting many major great power forwards. Oh, my God. We've never we've never done this. I left off McHale, you left off Elvin Hayes, but we both made corrections. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. Happens sometimes. Yeah. Uh, To wrap up, I've been Logan Camden. I've been Carson Brabber. And this has been Nerd Sesh. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.